the Amazon culture is you can cry about conversion rate, but you can't do anything about it. We talk about metrics we can action. And so again, I think there's this real power of how do you bridge between understanding customer behavior, understanding customer value, but ultimately you want to take actions that are that are going to drive increased customer value. I'm seeing a lot of is, you know, it requires a new operating model, operating mindset. It, you know, you know, you've got all these amazing, fantastic, successful traditional retailers who are still often operating with a model that 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 was that was designed for store retailing, um, and and hasn't really evolved and adapted to the sort of this customer centric world. There was a very brief window where, where fig leaves were sort of riding riding high. Um, a couple of years later, ASOS was five times the size of, of fig leaves. And that was my first big, big learning was in the early days of the internet, you know, as people were coming online for the first time, fig leaves was growing exponentially. So on today's episode, you're going to learn about how to be customer centric. It's a great episode you don't want to miss, so do stay tuned. This is the 2X e-commerce podcast hosted by Kunle Campbell. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast. I'm your host, Kunle Campbell. This is the podcast you listen to if you need insights to become a smarter e-commerce operator, full stop. Now, on today's episode, my lights come on, actually. I have my studio lights. If you're looking at this on YouTube, I just turned it off. On today's episode, I was um, you, you're going to listen to an interview I had with Michael Ross. Now, when it comes to like really smart guests on, on this podcast, he comes like at the top 1% on um, just with all the guests that have come in this podcast. And, and here is why he's a Cambridge graduate. Um, then he moved or started his career at um, McKinsey. And if, you know, you know McKinsey, McKinsey is a consultant firm that, you know, essentially takes the smartest of, of people. Um, he went on to become the CEO and I believe the founder of figleaves.com back in September 1999. He ran it for about seven years and he's he's had a stream of non-executive roles, some of which are with Sainsbury's Bank, um, another with Shop Direct. So, and now um, he is the chief retail scientist at Edited. Now, um, Edited uh, acquired his business, which was more into e-commerce intelligence, right? Um, I, um, and he's 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 chief retail you know scientist. He's also the author of of a book called The Customer Base Audit, co-author, which is published by Wharton Publishing Company. So. When it comes to insights from a high level, I'm talking about a very high level, you know, where he's he's speaking with omni channel retails with insights which he shared on this podcast. This episode is is it. I I learned a ton. You know, we 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 rally a lot around um, the concept of customer experience and customer centricity, but what does it really mean at a data level? Um, Michael sheds 
exactly what you need to to know from a data level with his um it's it's more an audit structure of like three key pillars to understanding the health of your 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 customer base essentially and then sort of getting those insights to allow you focus on the right cohorts of customers as well as um you know the the right set of actions to take he covers it all so without further ado i'll just like you to enjoy listen to this episode i have i think two pages of you know handwritten notes um while i spoke to him um he is 30 years into the game and um he was just going back in this conversation as to why he saw the success and and failures um running um you know e-commerce businesses back in in the early noughties and 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 how you know his insights today has given him a lot more context um in in that space so enjoy this episode if you really want to figure out you know um more about being customer centric from first a data perspective and and then after a more qualitative perspective hope i hope i've not babbled enough but um enjoy this episode Hey, Michael, welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast. Thank you, Goodly. Good to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I, I got a digital copy of, of Customer Base Audit um, about two weeks ago, and I just want to jump right into it. But before we do, I'd like you to yes. give our audience some context of who Michael is. Um, and feel free to go as far back or, or closer to today as, as you like. I just want you to, to give you that platform. Thank you, Kudley. Well, let me let me go back. Um, gosh, let me go back almost twenty nine years. Um, I started my my career at McKinsey and Company in the mid nineties, um, and I was probably lucky to be in the right place at the right time. It was the beginning of the internet. Um, Amazon had just launched, and I spent a very interesting, happy five years at McKinsey, consulting in a whole range of of internet related projects. So from the um, internet strategy for the BBC was my first project back in back in ninety four, um, and then in nineteen ninety nine, um, for those old enough to remember, that was when the sort of the whole the first dot com boom was taking off, and and consulting in in e commerce, um, I felt was like selling shovels during the gold rush. It was busy, there was lots to do, but um, if you believed in in what was going on, you wanted to be out there in the arena. Um, getting getting the dirt on your face, so um, I decided to sort of jump jump ship, um, and I ended up co-founding and becoming CEO of um, FigLeaves.com. So FigLeaves.com was one of the really early UK e-commerce businesses. We we set up at the same time as as ASOS and Net-A-Porter. Um I remember Nick Robertson coming to 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 visit um, FigLeaves in in two thousand. And um, yeah, and at the time, Fig Leaves was about three times the size of ASOS. So there was a very brief window where, where Fig Leaves was sort of riding riding high. Um, a couple of years later, ASOS was five times the size of, of Fig Leaves. And that was my first big, big learning was in the early days of the internet, you know, as people were coming online for the first time, Fig Leaves was growing exponentially. The, we grew one year 100% and the next year 80% and the next year 70%. 
And I remember my board saying to me, this is fantastic, Michael, we've got to keep growing, let's grow another 100% next year. And fundamentally, we didn't understand what, what was driving the growth of our business. We, 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 we saw the growth of traffic, um, the growth of conversion rates, but we didn't understand growth from a customer perspective. Um, what I wish I'd known then that I understand now is how to look um, at growth through the lens of customer acquisition and retention. And the challenge for Fig Leaves was we were bringing on a lot of new customers, but we weren't doing a great job of turning them into loyal existing customers. And to bring that to life, um, a loyal Fig Leaves customer was maybe buying two and a half times a year or three times a year versus a loyal ASOS customer who was buying 20 times a year. And what that meant was as our customer acquisition curve started to slow, which inevitably it does, our overall growth became extremely hard. So that will I'll, I'll come back to that because that 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 was that's played into my the, the sort of the, the last twenty years of my life of really the criticality of understanding growth through the lens of of customers. Um, we did one really smart thing, um, one really smart thing, which was we sold three hundred brands of of women's underwear, and um, I remember one day that one of my merchandisers came to me and said, Michael, um, we think we should um, stop selling La Perla. And La Perla is a very um, premium Italian lingerie brand, which we've done an incredibly hard job to get to supply us. Um, and I said, well, why on earth would we, we stop selling it? And she said, well, we've, we've done the analysis and it loses money. Um, when we look at the margin we're getting, we look at the returns rate, we look at the cost to photograph because they set such high standards, um, we're losing money on La Perla. But then what we did was we looked at the performance of the brand through the lens of the customer. And what we saw is that all of the customers who bought La Perla in their first purchase, they all went on to become very high value customers because they started buying a, a bunch of other products and brands that were much more profitable. And so this was a super insight into saying, if you look at the, if you look at profitability through a traditional merchandising lens, you would make a decision to stop selling the brand. But actually, when you look through the lens of the customer, you make a completely different decision. You actually think you should. The answer is we should be expanding the the, the product range rather than reducing it. So that was my that was the the one really successful customer insight. And then the third the third big takeaway from Fig Leaves was um, in two thousand and six. Um, I decided I wanted to move on. I'd, I'd sort of reached the limit of my operational capabilities. And I hired um, my successor, who um, previously had been running Amazon in the UK, and a, a character called Robin, Robin Tyrrell, a, a great, great online retailer. And um, he joined Fig Leaves. Um, and I remember very vividly after about two weeks, he sat me down and he said, Michael, he said, you're measuring, you're measuring all the wrong things. And I said, you know, give, give, give me an example. And he said, well, I can give you lots of examples. But he said, let me give you one example. He said, you're telling me that you're 92% in stock at the SKU level. And, and for lingerie, uh, for underwear that has lots of different colors and sizes, the, the, the SKU is, is a, sort of an individual color size combination. So we had about 50,000 SKUs on the website. And he said, well, you know, when you're telling me we're 92% in stock. And I said, that's correct. And he said, look, it doesn't matter. He said, what matters is, are we in stock of the products customers are looking at? A sort of what Amazon would call or Amazon call viewed availability. And 
viewed availability is a customer-centric metric. Unweighted availability, the 92%, is a company-centric metric. It, it measures the company's view of availability. But the viewed availability is much more around, well, what are customers actually looking at on the website? And this was a real epiphany because we, we thought we were a pretty smart leadership team. We've been running the business for seven years. No one had ever thought of that. And why was our viewed availability so bad? It was bad because we had lots of marketing traffic that was driving customers to products that were sold out or never existed or were very fragmented. Um, we had lots of personalization on the website and sort orders that were very, very good at promoting bestsellers, um, but weren't very good at pushing them down as they started to sell out. So this idea of how do you measure things that are important to customers, again, has been a really, really critical theme for me around how do you connect customer insight and customer profitability to business action. Absolutely. And I, I thank you for the intro. It's the longest. And um, I think this this has been the best um, intro this this year on, on, on the podcast. And, and you know, thank you for, for sharing the anecdotes on, on, on fig leaves. So with customer data, that, that direction, when you look at things from a customer's perspective, there, there are kind of like two, two ways to do that in terms of, okay, data on the one hand and what the customer actually feels when they are interacting with your offering. Um, yes. What feeds into what and how do you sort of stack it up from a strategic perspective to, to making the right decisions? Yeah, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. And I think the way you framed it is what feeds into what? Where do you, where do you start? And I think for me, I, I, I feel very strongly that, that, that a sort of customer-based audit is, is foundational. It's like this is something that every business should be doing as absolutely part of just the, how they, how they, how they run, run and operate their business. And for me, the, the customer-based audit has three elements to it. Um, the first one is, what is the health of our customer base? Um, you know, everyone recognizes every business that is direct engaging with customers, they have a customer base. How many customers do we have? How many active customers? How many are lapsing? How many have lapsed? Is our customer base growing year over year? Um, how do we feel about the, 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 and I think of this as a sort of, you know, every business has a balance sheet. You think of your active customer base as a balance sheet of customers. That's pillar number one. Pillar number two is then how do we make revenue and profit from customers? Um, the question I, I want to answer is how much of our revenue or profit in, in next year is going to come from our existing customer base? How many new customers do we need to acquire to hit our plan? And, and the way I think a fundamental way to look at that is, is through the lens of the customer cohort. And Many businesses have customer segments, but again, in my, my mind, uh, a cohort is, is, is the most foundational way of looking at the most, the most fundamental way. And when I talk about a cohort, I mean a group of customers that were acquired in, a, in the same period, whether that's a year or a quarter or a month. And the reason cohorts are so powerful is um, every customer is a member of one cohort, um, no customer is a member of more than one cohort, and the membership of a cohort never changes. 
So when you look at how revenue and profit is built up from cohorts, you get a very, very clear um, picture. What one uh, retailer described to me as the sort of as the heartbeat of their business, and you understand exactly how revenue from cohorts evolves over over time. Um, that's the second pillar. And then the third pillar is to look at the distribution of value um, of, of, of the customer base. Um, what I like to say is that there is no average customer. Um, and when you rank customers from sort of most profitable to least profitable, and you group them into sort of 10 bins, what you will typically find is a sort of a, a top decile customer can be worth 100 times a bottom decile customer. Now, Generally, you want all profitable customers are customers you want, but you want to ensure that you're aligning decisions um, across your business to customer value. And, and the La Perla example is, is for me a really nice example of how, how you can make a decision about merchandising aligned to customer value. So for me, these sort of three pillars of the customer base audit, I would say, are sort of foundational. The next level is then to say, well, Let's go and talk to customers. Let's actually understand, say, who are our most valuable customers? What makes them tick? What's important to them? Um, and, 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 and let me give you give an example from a, from a luxury retailer. Um, they went out and did a customer-based audit, and they found that they had a top 2% of customers, literally 2% of customers that represented 50% of their revenue and 70% of their profit, right? Incredibly concentrated. And um, you look shocked, Kunli. You shouldn't be. This is, uh, but the, it, it, you know, it, it, it's amazing when you look how how concentrated, um, you know, the, the, these very high value customers can be. And so they went and talked to customers, and they said, "Look, what's important to you?" They weren't interested in promotions. They weren't interested in discounts. These were very wealthy people. What they wanted was better service. And so it turned out that, that this business, one of the things they introduced was a top of the queue email experience and a top of the queue delivery experience. So if you're a high value customer and you placed an order, your order went straight to the front of the delivery queue. You know, you went, if you sent an email, you went straight to the front of the email queue. If there was any issue with your order, you'd proactively get an email from customer service telling you what was going on and asking you what they wanted you to do. Um, and then they did give you a sale preview, but that was like the fourth, the fourth most important thing. And so what was interesting about those four, four examples was they all had very high perceived value um, and very, very low cost, low cost to the, 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 the retailer. And that for me is you only get those sorts of insights by actually talking to customers. And, and for your brand or your retailer, really understanding um, who are your most valuable customers and what's important to them. And, and that's not a general, well, we've got to appeal to Gen Z or we've got to appeal to baby boomers. It's really, it's really drilling into the sort of specific people that are opening their wallets and spending and actually working out what is, what is, what is important to those people. Um, so I think for me, it's sort of combining the best of good quality analytics with with then you know really deep insight that you can only get from um, you know actually talking to customers. Let's take a short pause to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Hey, two Xers! I want to take a moment to talk about a service that has made a significant impact on product launches for e-commerce brands. 
It's called Tread. Tread first hit the market in early 2020 and has since become the go-to financing option for over 500 brands, including big names like Rosum. In just one sentence, Tread can be described as the ultimate solution for purchasing inventory, allowing retailers to sell first and pay suppliers later. As an e-commerce brand owner myself, I can't emphasize enough how helpful Tread has been for our business. Their unsecured funding and credit model, which takes into account the current financial health of a business, has allowed us to access financing without worrying about collateral. We've improved our cash flow by avoiding upfront supplier payments and freeing up funds. This has enabled us to invest in larger orders, expand our product range, and even negotiate supplier discounts. And let me tell you, the flexibility is amazing. Tread offers a pay-as-you-go model with a flat and transparent fee, which means you only use it when you need to. No hidden cost or long-term commitments, just a simple and effective way to manage our inventory financing. The best part? Tread works independently of e-commerce platforms and requires minimal onboarding. It doesn't matter if you're a founder, CEO, CFO, or part of the finance team, Tread can be a game changer for your business. With taglines like sell first, pay suppliers later, and snooze your supplier invoices with Tread, it's clear that Tread is all about empowering businesses like ours to import the goods we need now while handling the invoice and allowing us to pay up to 120 days later. So if you're in the e-commerce space and looking for a smart, flexible financing solution, I highly recommend giving Tread a try. Visit their website on treyd.io. That's treyd.io to learn more and get started today. Now, let's get back to the show. Okay. Makes, makes a lot of sense. So you start out with quantitative data and then you go more qualitative through interviews, surveys, and, and what exactly. have you with, with customers, exactly. with your, with your high values. Do you concentrate on the high value and then work your way down to a certain point to the mid, or do you just focus on, on that and master, get it right? Because with your example, 2% of customers generating 50% of sales and 70% of profits is, is staggering. That is where the focus it's should right. be. How do we squeeze more, right? That's it, right? That's it. So if you're going to start somewhere, you start there. You start there. Mm-hmm. They, they are they are the customers who you don't want to lose, and any small incremental um, profit you can you can squeeze from those customers is definitely the easiest group to get. I think that understanding what is different. So you're you're you want to focus on your high value customers, but you're you're also interested in what is what differentiates them from a low value customer. Um, so you definitely want to work your way down. Your you your 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 low value customers in aggregate are worth a lot, but you clearly need much more of a mass proposition and a mass commitment, mass communication to them. Um, so I think that that really is, I would say, the leadership challenge and the management challenge is how to, as you said, start at the top, work your way down, and think very very hard about um, how surgical do you need to be. You know how you know business is not about perfection; it's about making the right the right you know judgment calls. Um, 
And I think it's incredibly easy to sort of, you know, overcomplicate. Um, it's also easy to oversimplify. And I think that's maybe one of the big challenges I see with businesses at the moment is to find, to operate at the right, at the right level of complexity. Right. And, and it, it goes back to the point you made, one of the points you made in, you know, um, in the active customer base. Now, actually, in the um, in the second pillar, which is more looking at revenue from cohorts, you know, versus yes. um, what are the merchants do at a segment level or a demographic yes. level, um, the cohorts are fixed in stone. Um, they came at a certain period. Okay, so would you go any deeper than that timestamp? Because that timestamp might have resulted in a collaboration that brought in you know, a specific quality of customers or a channel or a, a marketing campaign, um, would you go into channels or would you fix it at time? Um, and great, great, lovely question. So, so you never fix anything, right? You, you start with cohorts and then you, and then you dig deeper. So I think if you see all cohorts are behaving very, very similarly, great then you know like happy days if you see okay we can see that we have a particular cohort that is performing incredibly well or very poorly or was performing well and then stopped performing well that's when you double click and you ask the question why um amazon didn't invent this but they have a, a this concept of the five whys where you keep asking why until you find a root until you find a root cause and, and exactly that, if you see, wow, we've got a, the, whatever, the, the, the quarter three 2022 cohort, they look really, really good. Then you ask the question, well, what did we do? Oh, that was interesting. That's when we ran a collaboration. Um, I was looking at a business recently where I said, wow, what did you do on this month? Because something happened. And the business said, oh, yeah, we remember we stopped sending our catalog. You know, we used to do a catalog and that was the that was the month we stopped it. And it's like, well, that that looks like a mistake because you can see that the cohorts that were performing very, very happily, suddenly they 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 fell off a cliff. So I think you the the, the other dimensions you're overlaying, whether it's channel, whether it's device, whether it's geography, all of those things are really powerful overlays. Um really to bridge from sort of what I would say from customer profit to business decision. Um, all of this customer insight is, is sort of, shall we say it's interesting, but it's not, it's not useful and, unless it translates into insight and action. And so the drill downs you're describing are absolutely critical to decide, you know what, do we just keep doing what we're doing? The system is performing well, we don't need to change anything. Or do we want to make an intervention? And if we want to make an intervention, do we want to do it for specific customers? Do we want to do it for a specific channel, for a specific brand, um, for a specific element of the operation? I think that that for me is is the sort of the central management challenge of a of a customer centric business. It's like of all the I see lots of businesses fiddling around with websites changing the colors of buttons, which is probably the least important thing. Um, whereas, you know, uh, you know, a a a Amazon, you know, have a real discipline of, well, let me, let me, let me tell you, cause this is a great story from a, a friend of mine who was at Amazon. Um, and I asked him, you know, what do you, what did you talk about on a Monday morning? Um, and, and I, and he, he said, Michael, we talk about four things. 
he said, we talk about um, viewed availability. You know, mm -hmm. I mentioned this. Are we in stock of the products that customers are looking at? He said, we talk about viewed price competitiveness. Are we price competitive on the products that customers are looking at? We talk about delivery on promise. Are we delivering to customers when we told them we would? And we talk about range competitiveness. Do we have everything that our competitors have? And do we have exclusive product? And I said, you talk about conversion rate. And he said, no, because the Amazon culture is you can cry about conversion rate, but you can't do anything about it. We talk about metrics we can action. And so again, I think there's this real power of how do you bridge between understanding customer behavior, understanding customer value, but ultimately you want to take actions that are that are going to drive increased customer value. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, with, with, with all of those four questions, it, it ended with what customers are looking at. So again, it's from exactly. their lens. The data is telling you what they're seeing and how they're behaving. And you're translating that data to take more, much more smarter decisions. You know, you would hope Interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah, that's precisely it. That's precisely it. So web analytics, web analytics, which is, you know, it's seen as something for the digital team. Oh, you know, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's Adobe or Google. It's very complicated. In my mind, that's the glue. That, that is, the, that is the, the digital exhaust that tells you what are your customers actually doing and looking at and interacting with. Um, that is the gold dust that should be so relevant for the, the, the merchandising teams and the buyers and the planners. But that's one of the challenges in most digital retail businesses is they're organized like traditional retailers where they never had this data. Mm -hmm. so, so, so that, that record, yeah. Go for it, sir. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think what, what I'm seeing a lot of is you know, it requires a new operating model, operating mindset. It, you know, you know, you've got all these amazing, fantastic, successful traditional retailers who are still often operating with a model that 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 was that was designed for store retailing, um, and and hasn't really evolved and adapted to the sort of this customer centric world. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned. You, you, well, your analogy at the start of this conversation was, um, you know, the customer the customer base audit is very similar to a balance sheet in, in you know, in in, in a um, in, in finances or in, in, in financial world. You know, obviously, you know what a healthy balance sheet looks like. You know, more assets, you know, than than, than liabilities. When you 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 get this, you know, um, customer audit out, you know, based on the three pillars, as well as you know your last point on on um, on talking to customers, how do you gauge the health? You know, are there any metrics to gauge the health of your customer base? You know, how do you know um, my my customer base is firing on all engines on on all cylinders, rather? And that is a great great question. I think. You know, it's a simple terms. If, if your customer base is growing, that's generally a good thing. If it's shrinking, that's generally going to be a bad thing. Um, although you, I would say that there are a bunch of businesses that are increasingly realizing they have a bunch of loss-making customers. So actually, sometimes you do need to sort of shrink your base before you, 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 grow, you, you grow it again. 
Um, I think that understanding um, so that there's a sort of an overall how is the customer base um, performing over time. I think then within that, understanding the dynamics. So one of the things I like to look at is um, um, let's look at the sort of I talked about these deciles. Let's look at customers' decile this year versus last year. How stable is that? Um, is it that our highest value customers, um, and let me give you one 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 story on this. I remember talking to one luxury department store in London, um, and they were interested in, in the stability of their highest value customers. I think these were customers spending more than £5,000 a year. And they said, you know, they looked at the number of those customers and they said it was great. They saw, you know, five, three years ago, they had, you know, a few hundred of those customers. And then last year, they had a few thousand. And then a year later, they had, you know, more, more than that. Um, but then when they looked year on year, they saw that all the high value customers from two years ago had completely churned. Um, and so then they, they, they sort of said, so overall, the customer base was growing and the VIP customer base was growing. But actually, there was an enormous amount of churn. And that then led to the question of why. And so, again, you sort of drill into, well, what's driving it? And, and the punchline there was there were a lot of international um international customers, particularly Chinese customers, who were very, very sensitive to the the, the, the Chinese um, sterling exchange rate. And when the UK was a cheap place to do their luxury shopping, they'd come to London. But when the pound strengthened, they would go somewhere else. They'd go to Singapore, they'd go to the US. And so they thought they had this sort of, you know, great lot of VIP customers. In fact, what they were observing was just to do with, it, with exchange rates. Um, and so I think that sort of, so when you say benchmarks, I think, again, it comes down to really understanding the dynamics, what's driving the growth of the customer base. And then, you know, you're not seeking perfection, you just want to make it better. And you want to ensure you're making the right um, investments. Again, another example of, you know, what goes wrong. Um, I was working with one UK retailer um, who was saying, you know, we, we're, we're doing fantastically. We've got a customer, average customer value of £200, um, and our average customer acquisition cost is £20. So this sort of £200 value, £20 acquisition cost, what, what is called the sort of CAC-LTV ratio, where you divide the, the value by the customer acquisition cost, and that was a sort of 10 to 1 ratio. And, and they were saying, you know, we're, we're best in class. Google's telling us we're really, really good. We want to be spending more money on acquisition. What was interesting, we, we did two things. We looked at the distribution of customer value and the distribution of customer acquisition cost. And, 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 and again, the punchline there was that most of the spend was acquiring customers where the, the customer acquisition cost was greater than the lifetime value. You, you, the, the, you have both of these distributions were very, very, very skewed. Um, most of the customer acquisition cost was very cheap, but most of the customer value was very, very low value customers. And so, again, what the insight there was is being, you know, this was a business that was just sort of growing customers, but actually at the margin, the customers they were acquiring, they were spending more money to acquire them than it was generating in lifetime value. So ultimately, as a business, you care about long, long-term profitability, um, and you generally would think that growing a customer base is an input into that, but not at any cost. You, you certainly need to understand, understand the trade-offs 
and, and make sure that you're not just growing a customer base without any concern for what it's costing you to acquire customers. So what did they do with that insight? They took the spend. So once they looked at that distribution and they said, wow, you know, we've grown our customer base 10% last year, but actually we've now, we spent a whole bunch more money acquiring those customers and they were then, then they're going to be worth to us. Let's redeploy that, those marketing dollars. Let's not keep sort of, you know, um, let's not sort of keep feeding the machine. In their case, they were, they were a physical, they were an omni-channel retailer. And, and one of the insights we found is that actually stores was a much better route to acquire customers than the digital channels. That actually, if you look at a store as a vehicle for acquiring customers, um, it was very, very powerful. And, and you, you know, obviously, there are lots of online retailers now doing pop-up stores. When they looked at stores just in terms of what we call the four walls profitability, how much money is going through the till, didn't look great. But when you looked at the, the store profitability based on where well, we acquired this customer and then they went home and they spent a lot more money online, you realize that actually a store was a brilliant way. So the, the, the punchline was, let's take a bunch of cash that we're spending on digital marketing and let's open, let's open more stores. Yeah, especially with um, a store to, um, to to online loyalty program, it's so powerful. Exactly. Uh, I yeah. I I was activated at Rituals Rituals Cosmetics um, early this summer. Yes. You know, as a customer, and you know the loyalty program obviously extended online, and yeah, it's it was it's a fantastic experience from an omni-channel standpoint um yes. they, the second time I, I i went to shop there I, I got this gift one was acknowledging my birthday um another was um based on a spent threshold and um yes. there were two two others which interlaid with like a first online purchase it was it was phenomenal phenomenal and it, they were talking it's, it's a holistic customer centered you know, experience, loyalty experience, which I haven't seen any anyone That's execute. It. Yeah. And no, uh, no, and I think I think when you as you said, when you experience these things, when it works well, it's it's a joy. It's like and and you know, it drives loyalty, it drives advocacy, right? You know, you're just you know, advertising that to a to a, obviously a big, big group of people who hopefully have, have listened this far. And um it's I think what you what you find is these things are they're easy to talk about, actually really executing them well. Um, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Um, and I think you need to, to pilot it a lot. You know, um, you, know you, you talk about like mystery shoppers. You, you really need to pilot this with, with, with actual real yes. you know, people, with cohorts of real people, which, which circles me back to one of the points you made. Um, particularly, again, I want to go back to that example of the 2% you know, of customers generating 50% of sales and 70% of profits yes. for, for that retailer. Um, so what, how does like referral, with, with that sort of insight, what, how would you get those customers to get more customers like them because they're, you know, they, they, they hang out with, with each other, so, so to speak? Um, sure. What would... Just again, this is this is like sideways. But, but how would you, you know, approach that? Um, getting them to to build that base for you as a as a retailer. I mean, I'll tell you one example because obviously, you know, particularly high value customers, they're not 
they're not going to be interested in like a friend get friend voucher, for example. No. But what what are the, some a couple of a couple of examples of what this business did? They they did fashion shows because they were a super premium luxury retailer. They did fashion shows for for sort of press and celebrities, and they they invited I think twenty of their highest value customers to these fashion shows. And that was extremely successful. That was extremely successful. They they then looked at the behavior of those customers. And, and that, I would say, is probably um, a very clever idea because then these customers, they're going to they're gonna take photos. They're going to tell all their friends. So you sort of give them the opportunities to spread the word without it being too cynical. Um, I, I, I think more generally, the, these are – the create the creative marketing challenges, right? It's like okay, we've got these super valuable customers. Let me give you another example. Um, one beauty retailer, um, they realised that a lot of their customers were coming into their store. They were they were dropping their kids off at a certain set of you know private schools in in London, and then they were all coming to get their nails done. Um, you know, first, uh, you know, at 10 o'clock in the the morning. It's like, okay, well, that's an insight, right? If we get this insight that there's a sort of going to be mothers, you know, not to be, not to make a generalization, but it's going to be mothers at the school gate. How do we then create morning events in our store? A little bit like Lululemon did with their yoga classes. classes, I think, yeah, right. These, these, these are the sort of really clever ideas that if you, Again, you, you don't see that in the data, right? You, you no. The data gets you so far, and then you you join it with these sort of real deep, deep customer insights, and then you execute well. Okay, well, that's yeah. that's the virtu- that's the virtuous circle. I think that's what yeah. good, good customer-centric yeah. retailing feels like. Which, from an execution and team standpoint, means that um, the data people need to be speaking with um, the creative people with the mediator. That you know ensures that um, there's 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 <laughs> there are campaigns that serve you know um, the 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 outcome or the the translation of the data. Couldn't yeah yeah couldn't agree more. I think that one of the biggest challenges I find is this sort of sometimes this sort of disconnect between um, you know data teams. Um, for whom, you know, a dashboard or a piece of insight is the end of the journey and creative teams um, who have the challenge of how do we translate this into product or marketing. I think um, I remember talking, I think it was William Kim who used to run e-commerce at Burberry um, and he described the people he looked for were were geeks who could speak um, that was the sort of, and if you could find a geek who could sing, that was that was Nirvana. And <laughs> I think that that idea of saying, how do you um, create that partnership between you know data people and creatives? Um, again, that's extremely hard to pull off in practice. It's extremely hard to pull off in practice. It, it mm. requires um, you know creatives willing to ask questions and be curious about customers and be curious about data um, and the data teams willing to, and as you said, the intermediary, in the same way that in, in technology, we have sort of product managers who sit between the business and technology. I think there is a really critical role for translators to sit between the analysts and, 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 the, and the business people. Hmm. Um, 
I, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed, um, you know, this, this conversation. So two things I, I, I'd love you to do now that we've got in here is, um, what are you doing now? Are, are you still with Edited? Yes, I'm, I'm chief scientist of Edited. So um, my, my business dynamic action was acquired um, two years ago or two and a half years ago. Um, and I've stayed. So I, I, I'm working with the Edited clients um, um, on all of these issues, on, on all around how do you join together both um, transactional data, behavioral data, uh, market intelligence data to help them make better decisions. That's my mm. life's work. So, um, and what's the proposition of overall proposition at Edited? What, what, what's the full delivery? So, so we're a software platform. Um, mm. We we have the old the, hit, the, the 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 sort of the old Edited business is all about market intelligence. Mm-hmm. So we have um, both fashion, um, beauty, and home. We have the the, the best market intelligence. Um, system on the planet. So that's huh. essentially seeing price proposition um, range for every retailer you could think of in every market on the on the planet. Huh. And then my old business dynamic action is all around inside the enterprise data. So we're bringing together digital marketing data, web analytics data, customer data, returns data, supply chain data, gross margin data to give this sort of holistic view of, of what is going on in the business. And so huh. edited now is all around bringing together inside the enterprise data with with market intelligence data to simply to make better faster decisions it, that's mm. that's the yeah. that's the challenge makes sense makes sense makes a lot of sense so it's edited.com and then your book right. the the customer base audit you, you co-authored it with um with with Bruce is it um Bruce Peter, Hardy and Pete Fader. Peter Fader, yes. Um, it's out on all platforms. You've been you've been out for a while, for for, for a year now. Um, it's on Amazon Audible. Not many business books are on Audible, so that's a plus. Um, you know, Kindle, you know, and 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 the like. Um, yeah, so so I would link to it in the show notes. It's called the Customer Base Audit: The First Step on the Journey to Customer Centricity. I like the name and the book cover is really really nice. Um, for people who want to follow you, follow your work, are you active on any social media channels? Um, I would not describe myself as super active. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and I post occasionally. I post occasionally. Um, okay. But yes, I am we'll, mildly we'll linked, active. We'll, we'll link to your, your LinkedIn. Michael, it's been an Thank absolute you. pleasure. Um, deeply insightful as in, uh, i really enjoy this conversation so thank you for for coming on the 2x e-commerce podcast thank you, cheers great pleasure